0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a founder that is a, you know, quite the founder. I mean, he's done it multiple, multiple times. I mean, from starting the business to scaling it, to raising money, to, to getting acquired. I mean, every single thing that you can think of. Uh, and I think that we're going to learn quite a bit, you know, in, also in different, in different industries. So I guess without further ado, Stefan Schambach, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you were born and raised in Germany. So how was life there?
1: Yes, more specifically in East Germany. So I grew up in communism. And life was very different. And some of it reminds me um, about the current times that we live in. You know, there wasn't much to buy in the stores.
0: Yeah, I remember. I actually uh, remember when I visited Berlin years ago, I went to this museum, the Checkpoint Charlie, I think it was called. And uh, it showed the differences between the East and the West. And pretty unbelievable, the, the differences.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I grew up in East Germany, but when the world came down, I was about 19 years old and a physics major, and I felt I could do everything I wanted and decided to become an entrepreneur.
0: Did you have anyone in your family that, that had this you know, drive for, for, for business, for starting your own thing, or, or how did you get that?
1: That's an interesting question, because I learned much, much later that my grandfather, whom I never met, was a very successful entrepreneur, and it was sort of hidden from me a little bit because he got um, um, after the after the Second world war um, his uh, his estate basically fell to the state in, in East Germany, and he he wasn't much talked about. Because that what what uh, for some reason, it was deemed to be dangerous, so much, much later, actually, just like ten years ago, i um you know met with uh, some of my relatives and they told me that story and showed me that he was a successful entrepreneur they had, they had some old photographs and samples, um, he was into manufacturing, interesting enough, but I never knew that before, and um, my parents were physicians, so I thought I had a you know unique uh you know skill that had no um, <laughs> relationship to my my uh, uh relatives but uh it it just skipped one generation it seems that's amazing
0: and why physics what was that because it was just the only thing that you had available or or why do you go with physics
1: honestly at that time, I was happy to be in any form of higher education program because I wasn't seen as Um, or my parents had no interest in supporting the regime. And usually back then, higher education was limited to those that were clearly a fan of communism. And I wasn't, and my parents weren't. So, um, you know, I was glad to get into any program. And physics wasn't necessarily what I wanted, but I had some interest in it. And it wasn't
0: bad. So, so you were alluding to it then, then when, when the wall came down, obviously, you know, like that gave you obviously the East and the West, you know, coming together and, and that gave you, you know, like this, this sense, you know, this freedom. Uh, and I guess that, you know, you mentioned that, that this really is the, what pushed you to, to, to really go at it and, and become an entrepreneur. So, so tell us what that process was for you.
1: Actually, I made that decision pretty much in the night when the wall came down. I made a split-second decision to jump aboard a train to Berlin when I just watched television and heard that the borders are open. And uh, that night in in West Berlin, I decided that I want to start a business on the side initially. Later, obviously, the business boomed and I didn't have the time to finish my degree and I was no longer interested in becoming a physics uh, lab rat somewhere. (laughs) Got it. So then, So then what was this first business? Because obviously here you saw the... Yes, my the first computer. business was simply I would buy computers in West Germany and would sell them in uh, you know East Germany and install the computer networks and do some custom programming with um, a couple of people that I hired. It was nothing special. It was interesting how it got started. I didn't have a car, so I hitchhiked in the bordering states um, of uh, Bavaria and found a computer distributor who was willing to give me um, a line of credit. And this computer distributor was an individual who got shot at while fleeing from East Germany. And he simply said that I was the first young gentleman coming to him and asking for it and he would support me. And He more or less gave me a car, a driver, a bunch of computers, and other things I wanted to have, and off we went. This is how the first business got started. I paid him in cash because at the time the banking system didn't allow for uh, uh, convertible currency transfers between East and West. That came a couple months later, but the first deliveries I paid with rats of cash (laughs) um, in hand.
0: Got it. So whatever happened with this business?
1: Oh, it's still around. The... Oh, very cool. What's the name of this business again? It's difficult to, it, it, S-E-H, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you would find it easily now. They're a specialty distributor for uh, terminal and, uh, equipment that banks need now. They changed, obviously, their business model a little bit. They're not a universal computer distributor anymore, but they were at the time and they helped me to get started, which I'm totally thankful for because it was based on Trust and handshake. There was nothing else to yeah. to prove that I'm worthy.
0: Absolutely. And then, I mean, did you did you sell this business or or what did yeah, you do? How I did sold you it accept?
1: to um, a partner that um, I had in the business and started what was late what later became Intershop.
0: Got it. Obviously, Intershop quite a quite a success.
1: So so tell us about the incubation of Intershop. We had a business. Model before Intershop in document imaging. And we selected a computer platform that was super interesting and exciting called Next, N-E-X-T. Next was a platform that was invented by Steve Jobs after he got fired from Apple. And those machines were 20 years or so ahead of their time, I felt. And they could do things that PCs couldn't do. And we built software on it, and it was fantastic. We could sell it. Um, however, a couple years later, this, PCs became powerful enough to do what we did with our document imaging software. And we lost our market because these machines were too expensive. And um, But Next was always tightly coupled with the early Internet. So we had email FTP. It was the only way to stay in touch with other developers. And the only way to get software, we are all used to downloading software. But back then, that was a total novelty. Back then, it was on floppy disks and later on CDs, but not in the Next environment. It was mostly downloads. So when the web browser showed up on Next, we took notice. But when it showed up on Windows, it was even more interesting because we had um a competitive situation with a US player who whose document imaging software run on windows which you know by 1994 was um, powerful enough uh, to compete with us so we lost that market we had uh, we had financial obligations we had a you know a credit line at 17% interest rate with a local bank and our business was dwindling so we were in dire need of a new idea and what we had was something called World Wide Web becoming available on Windows in the form of a web browser with mostly educational and uh, scientific app, um, uh, applications on it. And we were wondering if there was a commercial application for the internet and eventually build a prototype of a shopping platform that we tested with data from a computer distributor and we played online shop for computer parts for a while. But you know, eventually we had, you know, delivery trucks showing up every day, giving us hundreds of packages that we had to repack and chip and we didn't want to be in this business. So we decided then to stop that and become a software company. And um, InterShop, that was the name of the company, eventually produced the first packaged uh, e-commerce software uh, that was on the market. It was um, released uh, originally in 1997. Um, Before, it was prototypes and other things. We were venture-financed. The company was headquartered in San Francisco. And things moved pretty quick back then. We went public in 1998 at the Frankfurt Stock Exchange and later added a NASDAQ listing in 2000, on the last day where it was still possible because afterwards, the markets completely crashed. (laughs) And... uh, dot com bust happened and uh,
0: yeah and i mean you were able to to go through that uh, through 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 that cycle too no i mean you you got this company it was a valued at its peak at 14 billion uh how many employees did you have at the peak
1: at the time at peak was was 1500 employees
0: wow i mean what 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 would you say what was the time there you know like compared to the time now i mean how, how how are things different now
1: actually The way this crisis unfolds right now reminds me very much about the dot-com bust. It doesn't feel like the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. It feels much more like dot-com bust. Um, There is like the bottom has been pulled out under (laughs) parts of the economy, and that has a trickle-down effect to everybody who supplies that economy, right? So... You know, for the foreseeable futures, it will be difficult for entire parts of the economy you know, not just retail um, to you know, sell them um, information systems. So that's, that's probably one of the, they see this as one of the discretionary spending. So it's going to be tough. I mean, we're in a good position, I think, but uh, this is not going to be easy.
0: Yeah, no, of course. I mean, obviously here you had the opportunity to learn. You know, I, I think that the the problem with many entrepreneurs nowadays, especially the ones that are operating all these companies that are worth billions, you know, that maybe launched in 2008, is that they didn't really go through through what you went through, you know, like here uh, with the business. So I guess uh, with 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 this one, you know, like during this time with during InnerShop, what did you learn, you know, going through you know the dot-com bust? Because obviously you guys uh, went through that, you know, the company survived. Uh, and obviously, you know, like you, you, you left later to start your 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 next business, which we're going to talk about. But, but I guess you know, like during that that shaky time, you know, like what did you really learn?
1: Hmm. Um, on the one hand, we had an interesting situation. There was no more new business for a while, so it was very tough to acquire um, a new business, at least for a for a year. But our existing customers, they their, their online businesses kept growing. And for a while, even they didn't realize it necessarily because it was such a small percentage of their overall re- revenue. But at some point, it reached 10%, 12%, and it became really important. And I looked at... The retailers that we worked with and how difficult it was for them to operate these systems because it wasn't just our software they had a choice of hardware of servers they needed backup systems databases firewalls you name it there were 20 different um, component types of which you each had like four or five different vendors you could pick from so every installation was unique and had its unique challenges, and it was difficult to upgrade it and when they had a spike in traffic, because their business grew, they needed to buy new hardware, it was very difficult for them and that led me to and, and we only sold the license, so we didn't have a sustainable business model. So I thought it would be much better if we could create a uniform setup where we could share the resources across. Many retailers do a much better job of designing it for purpose, upgrade everyone automatically and essentially run it as a service for them. Today, that's how business is done in B2B software. It's called SaaS, right? But back then it was a novel concept and the only company who did it in some shape or form was Salesforce. Yeah so watching this and coming to the conclusion that something that's run as a service where the software developer would also be responsible for the success of the software was seemed totally logical but it was impossible to explain to people I mean I didn't find investors initially I didn't find Customers who were even remotely interested in that because it was, it seemed such a something that was totally clear to me that this is the future, seems such a foreign concept. So, I mean, convincing people that this might be the future, even if I had like scientific proof in individual components or financial models and so forth, it was very interesting how different. Entrepreneurs think about the problem, or um, you know, and, and and how difficult it is for them often to convince um, uh, the, their constituency uh, to to support that. Uh-huh. Anyways, we eventually came through, but it was an interesting time. So, I everybody thought e-commerce was over. Just to summarize this, I thought it was just delivered in the wrong way. And that was the right approach. It turned out to be the right approach.
0: And, uh, you know, like this reminds me to, for example, like the, the, um, the communication that Sequoia sent uh, early in March to their companies where they were talking and showing, and, and this also relates to their RIP Good Times presentation that they did back in 2008, where it really showed clearly like in, in moments of turbulence, the companies that are able to really survive are those that are able to put a correction in place quickly and to be able to adapt to the to the new, you know, uh, to the to the new whatever whatever is opening. Yes. So um, so it seems that here you guys were able to do that, but obviously here you know, like you left uh, in 2004, uh, once all the turbulence, you know, like kind of like uh, you know was a little bit more stabilized, uh, and you went at it again. So what happened?
1: Well, again, you know, I became. Convinced through what I've tried for the entire year 2003 at my old company, Intershop. I I tried to build a cloud-based version of Intershop, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I couldn't take the people who are assigned to the best customers who are bringing in the money to a new project, withdraw them from producing revenue that might or might not uh provide revenue, you know, a couple of years down the road. Because I wanted to have a subscription-based business model that was essentially a revenue share and not a sale of licenses. So the entire incentive system in my company at InnerShop at the time was geared towards selling something, making the quarterly sales goals, selling licenses, whereas what I wanted to do was something that would start with a trickle. Um just a revenue share, and it was it turned out to be impossible to um muster the resources internally um even though I was the you know biggest shelter I controlled the board. I could have done everything, but that just didn't work um not in a downturn uh, anyways and um yes yeah, so i it it led me to believe that if I wanted to make that work, I would have to do it outside of um my old company and start um all over again. I also tried to get funding for this idea, and it was impossible to do it at Innershop because Innershop was was always looked at through the lens of its old business. So it seemed easier to start from scratch, and that that was uh, Demand Bear, which got funded by General Catalyst and Northbridge um, as the VCs in uh, summer of
0: uh, 2004. So, I mean, obviously here, this is the... You know the next rodeo. I mean, the the next time that you're at it again, raising money. So at this at this point, you're seasoned. You know, at the at fundraising, and you know, you know how to do it, and from where, and from who. So when it comes to from who, like, like now, like I, I guess, like when it comes to fundraising, like, what would you say? You know, uh, uh, an ideal investor. Why, in this case, for example, you pick, let's say, General Catalyst. How do you pick your investors? How do you go about picking your investors? It's a very good okay.
1: question. I mean, at the time. Here's what we did. I, Me and my technical co-founder, we went to the East Coast and the West Coast of the US, so San Francisco Bay Area mostly and and Boston, and met with VCs. So it's like speed dating, right? So we we go to one VC, we pitch it, we tell them we're not ready to get funded yet, we just want your... Feedback and maybe you can recommend a couple other people we should meet, VCs or other, you know, otherwise. And so we networked pretty quickly through uh, the VC scene in San Francisco and in Boston. And in San Francisco, they it was easy to get the meetings, but whenever I said that it, we wanted to do e-commerce, the meeting was pretty much over. Um, so <laughs> there was a hangover effect from the dot-com bust in the valley where they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Boston was a little different. There was more interest because some of the early e-commerce software successes came from, from uh, the Boston um, area. And eventually I met General Catalyst, and what was interesting is I knew some of the people that were entrepreneurs in their prior life. So Larry Bone, for example, ran a company that uh, we partnered with, um, NetGenesis. Intershop and NetGenesis had a partnership. um, So I knew him as an entrepreneur and and CEO and trusted him. And pretty much all the other partners at the time at General Catalyst were also software entrepreneurs, like uh, Jeremy Allaire, uh, for example, or David Ofeo. So we had a whole bunch of like-minded people who were not bankers. And that made all the difference because they generally wanted to succeed through the agency of others and help instead of being just a pin counter.
0: Yeah, and that's a very interesting point because it makes all the difference. And now obviously you see that on, on most of the firms where they have people with background operational expertise, but before most of them were student and ties from Wall Street.
1: Yes, absolutely,
0: absolutely. So, so I guess when you evaluate an investor, like what are the key traits? I mean, is it about the network? Is it about like uh, who they can introduce you from a talent perspective, from a potential acquisition, or what are what are some of the things that you look at?
1: Oh, so I was, uh, first and foremost, do they have experience in the space that I'm at? I want to see that because only then. Can they understand when the company needs to pivot, to change, and uh, only then can they be helpful by giving me additional um, intelligence or other things that they learn from other companies. I am acutely aware that the partners I'm dealing with end up on my board. So it's like a marriage. I may very well have them in my life for 10 years. So I need to really like the people and know that they're going to be compatible with me and my team and helpful over a long period of time. And I want to see what they do for other entrepreneurs that they have invested in. So I'm interviewing, I'm usually interviewing other entrepreneurs that they uh, invested with. And I'd like to understand, for example, have they been helpful with talent? Um, How do they behave in board meetings? How do they behave when there's a crisis? You know, what's their ethical standards and so forth? And that makes a big difference if you have a partner that you essentially, through the co-sale agreements, are bound to until the company gets sold or the company goes public.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely one of the strategies there to expand on that is is for sure ask a failed entrepreneur to see how they behave during the the tough times, no? Yes. So, so obviously here on the on this journey, I mean, quite quite a successful outcome. Uh, so, so Salesforce acquired the business for, for how much? Uh, two point eight billion. What does it look like when you do when your company? You know, you're a founder of a company that is acquired for two point eight billion. What does it look What does it look like from the inside?
1: In this particular case, it was a very good acquisition because it was highly compatible. There was a time when acquisitions and software frequently went the wrong path. And at some point, it must have been 15 years ago or so, Oracle began to make acquisitions that turned out a little bit better by professionalizing the process and the integration and so forth. And... Um, you know, we were lucky that we essentially had the one of the best companies um, acquiring us. First of all, they had a clear need. Then we knew they could sell our product in m- many different verticals that we just didn't have the bandwidth to address. So we knew it would be good for them um, and it could become a big business. And essentially, you know, it, it, they turned it from a couple hundred million dollar business into, you know, a billion and a half. Uh, business growing rapidly so it it was good for everyone involved everybody yes and uh, it was good for our employees as well right they had stock options and uh, some of them are have made uh, careers in salesforce others are back in smaller companies depending on their personal preference but everybody felt that the overall experience was great
0: how many employees were at the time of the acquisition there?
1: I think it was about a thousand or nine hundred. Yeah. Wow. And what does it look like when when
0: you're leading a company with so many employees?
1: Well at the time I didn't run the
0: company anymore. When it was the a one fire. before you were. The one before yes, you I, were. I, 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 um, yeah, but <laughs> so when you're when you have so many employees, yeah. Uh, I mean it's, it's a big responsibility. how do you yeah, transform a, mind, a
1: leader the, to the, eat? Yeah, so it, the breaks are like this. I mean up to twenty people, there's no structure required. Um, you know, beginning with let's say you know less than a hundred, you need you know little structure, but you can still know everyone. And above that, um, you have to have investments in the culture, in um, systems, in organization, in values, in training, and other things to make it work. And um, with the even bigger company, obviously it is much more anonymous, and these the system the the systems the culture have to be built by then, otherwise it becomes very hard to run so I know that because at Innershop, we grew so fast that we just never had the time or even thought that it was necessary to invest in those things, and it came crashing down (laughs) when we had to uh, reduce the size of the company. We were not um, able to, um, you know, basically restart the company into a winner in e-commerce because of that. So I think we did a much better job with um, Demandware. And I also recognized the point in time when I didn't want to run the day-to-day business of the company anymore. And I felt there are people who may not be able to start a company like me, but are really good at scaling it once it has a certain size. And I went out of my way to find these people and hire them and bring them on board. And it paid off handsomely.
0: Very nice. And obviously, even on the side, you were making it happen.
1: Torquido. What was Torquido about? Yeah, Torquido is a hobby company. Essentially, I'm a sailor. And I am a fan of high performance catamarans that cruising catamarans essentially and I'm also very interested in environmental technology and wanted to build a catamaran that has a electric propulsion system a diesel electric hybrid propulsion system I built a prototype that went into my boat And it worked, but it was buggy. It had problems all the time. And I started a company on the side to industrialize a sort of a hybrid propulsion system. And once we kind of knew what we could build and what we didn't want to build ourselves, I found, uh, I I was looking for a partner and found that company, Torquedo. It was uh, based on Lake Starnberg at the time in Germany. And they were into electric propulsion for smaller boats and thinking about building something for bigger boats, such as catamarans. So I merged the companies and became the principal investor and chairman, and it was an active chairman. So I invested about five days a month in helping them, fully expecting that my investment would essentially be, you know, hobby money that I never see again. But it, it, uh, it ended up, at, at the end, you know, I had about $25 million in, so I was um, getting wary of it. And, but um, it got uh, acquired uh, for, you know, a decent amount, at least, you know, in this industry, um, if a technology company sells for, um, and, and the investors make money on it, it's, it's actually considered a success. So it was sold for yeah. 100 million to um, a 153-year-old German company that makes diesel engines and Deutz. And they had seen the writing on the wall that diesel engines are no longer the future and they needed to get into hybrid electric propulsion. And They used to have a marine division, so they were not uh, completely foreign to the concept. They acquired it basically to use the technology also for um, agriculture equipment, tractors, um, construction equipment, and so forth. So it, it was interesting. I, it was completely outside my comfort zone. Obviously, there was a lot of hardware, batteries, uh, electrical motors, and um, toys from <laughs> the past when I was a young um, a man. I was uh, um, you know, tinkering in electronics and electrical systems. It was a lot of fun, but also a lot of software. Um, and that uh, taught me a thing or two about what's going on in the automotive industry. Obviously, this is all becoming software. Anyway, so it was mighty fun. I still have that catamaran with the Torpedo system. If you want to have a look, it's called uh, Moonwave, moonwave.com. Um, there's some videos on it. And you know one of the things that I appreciate most is it can run long distances without ever firing up the diesel generator just by regenerating energy and charging the batteries from sailing.
0: Very nice. I mean, hey, not bad. Uh, a side hobby, a 100 million. You know, that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So, uh, and, and obviously a nice segue into your next business. New store. How did you bring new store to life?
1: Yes, we became... This was still at mantra. We became more and more convinced that omni-channel retail was the future. But it was difficult for us back then to do that because we were so tied to e-commerce. And the e-commerce business boomed, obviously, and consumed all the resources. I was back at my sort of innovator's dilemma problem again. I couldn't muster to pull enough resources aside to build something completely new. So I was already sort of pregnant with that idea while still at demand there, but it couldn't be executed properly. So, you know, once I had a little bit more time on my hand, I was essentially just the chairman of the board. I thought about what it would mean to bring e-commerce into retail stores and what mobile would mean, could mean uh, to retail, how online and offline could be one and not two different things. So... At new store, we're essentially providing an apple store like experience as a subscription service out of the cloud to any brand and specialty retailer who wants that and our customers' stores are run on iPhones they're not they don't have a cash register they don't have um, any store tag visible in the front of the store. The associates each have an, have an iPhone and they can sell. The inventory that they have in the store, they can sell inventory that is in other uh, stores or on the website. And customers can pay with traditional payment methods like credit card and cash, but they can also pay with their phones.
0: Got it. And obviously here, I mean, you guys have also raised quite a bit. Why why did you keep, uh, let's say, why did you raise money here? I mean, it seems like you've done already very handsomely with, uh, with with exits on the previous company. So, so why did you get external financing?
1: Well, I'm an investor too. And actually, I'm, a, I'm the biggest investor. But still, great businesses are built with partners, at least in my book. And General Catalyst had been a fantastic partner to me in the past. So it was logical to tap them and see if they were interested. And they were. I also found a specialty investor called Activant who had made um, successful investments in, in the uh, you know, sort of e-commerce retail space like Hypris, which was later sell, sold to SAP, that were extremely knowledgeable about the space. So I found two allies here that uh, were really uh, there to help.
0: Got it. And obviously here, I mean, it's, it's, I would love to hear what are your thoughts on where the uh, the industry, you know, it's, uh, it's going as a whole, you know, with, uh, with retailers, especially, you know, like in an, in an era, you know, that is going to be post-coronavirus.
1: Yeah, uh, obviously the retail industry at the moment is in the worst crisis ever. I just heard numbers from an industry analyst um, that retail is in the U.S. is down by 86%. Um, so it's life-threatening, obviously. You know our customers are specialty retailers and brands, so they have a significant portion of their business um, in, on the website, so it's a mix of uh, website and, and stores. We all hope that they can reopen doors, you know maybe in May, maybe a little later. Some of them obviously are in cash preservation mode right now, and it's very tough for them. Many will not survive despite all the I think the government uh, cannot provide enough relief or it will come too late for some of them. They will just not be able to um, um, you know make it uh, to the other side, so it's tough, so it will sort out the winners from the losers uh quite quite quickly
0: absolutely, absolutely, and obviously here you guys are. Uh, you've you've raised how, how much capital have you guys raised today?
1: Um, about uh, uh,
0: 130. 130 million. So obviously you guys are already in the in the growth stage. I'm wondering like what does it look like when you go from the early stage to that growth and 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 scaling stage? You know where perhaps you guys are at now. Like what does that transition look like?
1: Well, there's obviously much more investment in making the platform work not just for a handful of customers, but, you know, for many customers. um, You know, there's investment in making it work globally. Our customers, by definition, are brands that have global ambitions. These days, obviously, we're all trying to do this without having a massive amount of people doing it. There's lots of, uh, you know, partnering with other technology providers, with system integrators. We're not trying to do everything on our own.
0: Got it. And how big is the new store today? How many employees do you guys have? We have about 160 employees. Got it. Got it. And I guess the, um, you know, like obviously now, you know, like obviously with all the, the experience that you've been able to accumulate from all these different ventures and initiatives that you've had, if you had the opportunity, Stefan, to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Stefan that is 19 years old, where the world is opening in front of his eyes, where that freedom, that possibility of building something, what would be one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger self, knowing what you know now, uh, when it comes to launching a business and why?
1: Um, there's one specific mistake I made, and that was we. The- Brought Intershop public in Germany and not in the U.S. That was sort of at the wish of the investors because in 1998 Nasdaq had a bad um, patch, a bad couple of months, but uh, there was a lot of euphoria in Europe, and we had to change the company from a U.S. company into a German company, and then. Uh, we thought we would add the NASDAQ listing later. We did all that, but it was essentially the wrong move. I think had we not done it, we would have been able to grow and prosper uh, again later. But uh, that was part of what kept Innershop from thriving after the dot-com bust. So I think finding the right home market and the right Environment and and infrastructure to grow in is extremely important. So, I mean, it may be normal for US-bound entrepreneurs to start in the US. For me, it's an acquired skill. I started my first business, as I said, in East Germany, and then moved to the US to San Francisco uh, to continue on there. But I learned from it that you know B two B software businesses are best built. In the U.S. to begin with. So that was one. There's another one that I know (laughs) and it just has proven correct um, uh, and and (laughs) life-saving recently, that is I, I was always of the opinion that entrepreneurs should take money when they can get it and not when they need it. So what that means is that sometimes I have to be quick and maybe settle with you know less than perfect terms, but at least I have removed the risk of uncertainty in the future and can move on and focus on business. And it had had it has again proven extremely valuable. Um, recently, in uh, December, um, Salesforce was interested in making an investment, and um, you know. There were many ways to do it, and maybe we could have negotiated um, um, a different structure, a better price, or something. But you know, I felt that this is a great opportunity to cement the cement the partnership between Salesforce and uh, NewStore, and we we you know we were able to close it in December. And had we gone another way, and maybe waited a month or two, or negotiated a different structure that required more diligence. I don't think it would have ever closed because the coronavirus would have eliminated all appetite.
0: <laughs> wow! Well, i mean, talking about timing. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm seeing deals now falling through left and right. So, um, so what an amazing timing to be able to to have cash now to to weather you know the storm. No, so so that's amazing, Stefan. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? On LinkedIn. Wonderful. And do you have Twitter or anything like that? I do,
1: but I think LinkedIn is best.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well sounds like a plan. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker show today.
1: Thank you very much, Alejandro. If you like the
0: show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember